I'm Arielle Kahn with the Future of Life Institute. Whenever people ask me what FLI does, I explain that we try to mitigate existential risks. That is, we're basically trying to make sure that society doesn't accidentally kill itself with technology. Almost to a person, the response is, oh, I'm glad someone is working on that. But that seems to be about where the agreement on risk ends. Once we start getting into the details of what efforts should be made, who should do the work, how much money should be spent, suddenly people begin to develop very different opinions about how risky something is and what we should do about it. Some of the most intense debates can even come from people who agree on the ultimate risks, but not on the means of alleviating the threat. To talk about why this happens and what, if anything, we can do to get people in more agreement, I have with me Andrew Maynard and Jack Stilgo. Andrew directs the Risk Innovation Lab in the Arizona State University School for the Future of Innovation in Society. He's a physicist by training and, in his words, spent more years than he cares to remember studying airborne particles. These days, his work focuses on exploring how emerging and converging technologies can be developed and used responsibly within an increasingly complex world. Jack is a senior lecturer in science and technology studies at University College London, where he works on science and innovation policy with a particular interest in emerging technologies. Jack and Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Great to be here. So before we get into anything else, I was hoping you both could just first talk about how you define what risk is. Um, I think the, the word means something very different for a first-time parent versus a scientist who's developing some life-saving medical breakthrough that could have some negative side effects versus a rock climber. So if you could just explain how you think of risk. So, yeah, let me dive in first, saying that I not only have I studied airborne particles for more years than I care to remember, but I've also taught graduate and undergraduate students about risk for more years than I care to remember. Um, so the, the official definition of, of risk um, is um, it looks at the potential of something to cause harm, but it also looks at the probability. So typically, say you're looking at an exposure to a chemical, risk is all about the hazardous nature of that chemical, its potential to cause some sort of damage to the environment or the human body, but then exposure that translates that potential into some sort of probability. Um, and that is typically how we think about risk when we're looking at uh, regulating things. I actually think about risk slightly differently because that concept of risk runs out of steam really fast, especially when you're dealing with uncertainties, existential risk, and perceptions about risk, and when people are trying to make hard decisions and they can't work out how to make sense of the information they're getting. So I tend to think of risk as a threat to something that's important or a threat to something of value. And that thing of value might be your health, it might be the environment, but it might be your job, it might be your sense of purpose or your sense of identity or your beliefs or your religion or your politics or your worldview. And as soon as we start thinking about risk in that sense, it becomes much broader, much more complex, but it also allows us to explore that, that intersection between different communities and their different ideas about what's important and what's worth protecting. Jack, did you want to add anything to that? So I have very little to add to what Andrew just said, which was a beautiful discussion, I, I guess, of the conventional uh, definition of, of risk. I would, I would draw attention to all of those things that are incalculable. And when we are dealing with new technologies, they are often things to which we cannot assign probabilities and we don't know very much about what the likely outcomes are going to be. Um, I think... There is also 
a question of what isn't captured when we talk about risk. So it, it's clear to me that when we talk about what technology does in the world, that not all of the impacts of technology might be considered uh, risk impacts. So as well as the, the risks that it is impossible for us to be able to calculate, and when we have new technologies, um, we typically know almost nothing about either the probabilities of things happening or the range of possible outcomes. I'd say that we should also pay attention to all the things that um, I guess are not to do with technology going wrong, but are also to do with technology going right. So technologies don't just create new risks, they also benefit some people more than others. And they can create huge inequalities. I mean, if they're governed well, they can also uh, help close inequalities. But if we just focus on risk, then we lose some of those uh, other concerns as well. So, Jag, I, so this obviously really interests me in my work because to me, an inequality is a, a threat to something that's important to someone. Uh, do you have any specific examples of what you think about when you think about inequalities or equality gaps? Well, my, I, I think before we get into examples, the important thing is to, is to bear in mind a trend with technology, which is that technology tends to benefit the powerful. And that's an, that's an overall trend before we talk about any specifics, um, which quite often goes against the rhetoric of technological change because often technologies are sold as being emancipatory and helping the worst off in society, which they do, but typically they also help the better off even more. So there's that general question. Um, I think in the specific, we can talk about, well, what sorts of technologies do close inequities and which tend to exacerbate inequities. But it seems to me that just defining that as a social risk isn't quite, isn't quite getting there. So I guess this sort of moves into my next question, because I would consider increasing inequality to be a risk. So can you guys talk a bit about why it's so hard to get agreement on what we actually define as a risk? So one of the things that I find is um, people very quickly slip into defining risk in very convenient ways. Um, so if you have a, a company or an organization that really wants to do something and that doing something may be all the way from making a bucket load of money to changing the world in the ways they think are good, um, there's a tendency for them to define risk in ways that benefits them. Um, so, for instance, and I'm going to use a hypothetical, um, but if you are the maker of an incredibly expensive drug and you work out that um, that drug is going to be beneficial in certain ways with minimal side effects, um, but it's only going to be available to a very few, very rich uh, number of people, you will easily define risk in terms of the things that your drug does not do. So you can claim with confidence that this is a risk-free or a low-risk product. Um, but that's, that's an approach where you work out where the big risks are with your product and you bury them and you focus on the things whether you think that there is not a risk with your product. Um, and that sort of extends across many, many different areas, this tendency to bury the big risks associated with a new technology and highlight the low risks to make your tech look much better than it is so you can reach the aims that you're trying to achieve. I quite agree, Andrew. I think what, what tends to happen is that 
the definition of risk, if you like, gets socialized as being that stuff that society is allowed to think about, whereas the benefits are sort of privatized in that the innovators are there to define uh, who benefits and uh, in, in what ways. I, I would agree, though it also sort of it gets quite complex in terms of the, the social dialogue around that and, and who actually is part of those conversations and who has a, a say in those conversations. Um, and so to get back to your, your point, um, Ariel, I think there are a lot of organizations and, and individuals that want to do what they think is the right thing but they also want the ability to decide for themselves what the right thing is rather than listening to other people. How do we address that? <laughs> um, it's, it's a naughty problem and it has its roots in how we are as people and as a society, how we've evolved. Um, but I think there are, there are a number of ways forwards towards beginning to sort of pick apart the the problem and a lot of those are associated with work that is carried out in the the social sciences and even the humanities around how do you make these processes more inclusive how do you bring more people to the table how do you begin listening to different perspectives different sets of values and incorporating them into decisions rather than marginalizing groups that are inconvenient I think that's right. I mean, it's, it's ultimately, if you regard these things as legitimately political discussions rather than just technical discussions, then the solution is to democratize them and to try to wrest control over the direction of technology away from just the innovators and to see that as the, as the subject of, of proper democratic conversation. And there are some very practical things here, and I, this is where Jack and I might actually diverge in, in our perspectives. But from a, a purely business sense, if you're trying to develop a, a new product or a new technology and get it to market, the last thing you can afford to do is ignore the nature of the, the population, the society that you're trying to put that technology into. Because if you do, you're going to run up against roadblocks where people decide they either don't like the tech or they don't like the way that you've made decisions around the technology or they don't like the way that you've implemented it. Um, so from a business perspective, taking a long-term strategy, it makes far more sense to engage with these different communities um, and develop a dialogue around them so you understand the nature of the landscape that you're developing a technology into. And you can see ways of partnering with communities to make sure that that technology really does have a broad beneficial impact. Why do you think companies resist doing that? Is it just effort or do you, is there other reasons that they would resist? I think we've had decades, centuries of training that says um, you don't ask awkward questions because they potentially lead to you not being able to do what you want to do. So it's partly the, the mindset or the mentality around innovation, but it's also it's hard work. It, it takes a lot of effort and it actually takes quite a lot of humility as well. There's also a dynamic, which is that there's a, a sort of well-defined law in, in, in technological change, which is that we, we overestimate the effect of technology in the short term and underestimate the effect of technology in the long term, given that companies and innovators have to make short time horizon decisions. Often they don't have the capacity to take on board these big sort of world changing implications of technology. So if you look at something like uh, the motor car, 
right? It would have been inconceivable for Henry Ford to have imagined the world in which his technology uh, would exist in 50 years' time, even though we know that the motor car has led to the reshaping of large parts of America. It's led to an absolutely catastrophic level of public health risk, um, while also bringing about clear benefits of of mobility. But those are big, long-term changes that evolve very slowly, far slower than any company could um, appreciate. So can I play devil's advocate here, Jack, and, and ask you a question which I'm sure you must have been asked before? With hindsight... Should Henry Ford have developed his production line process differently to avoid some of the risks we now see or some of the impacts we now see of motor vehicles? Well, I think you're right to say with hindsight, it's really hard to see what what he might have done differently. Because the point is, the changes that I was talking about are systemic ones with responsibility shared across large parts of the system. Now, could we have done better at anticipating some of those things. Yes, I think we could have done. And I think had motor car manufacturers talked to regulators and civil society at the time, they could have anticipated some of those things because there are also barriers that stop innovators from anticipating, right? There are actually things that force um, uh, innovators' time horizons to uh, to narrow. Yeah, so so actually i so that's one of the points that really interests me it's it's not this case of do we don't we with a certain technology but could we do things better so we see um, more longer term benefits and we see fewer hurdles that maybe we could have avoided if we'd have been a little smarter from the get go how well do you think we can really anticipate that, though? When you say being a little smarter from the get-go, I'm sure there's definitely things that we can always do that that's smarter, but how much do you think we can actually anticipate? Well, so so the, the, the base cancer is um, very, very little indeed. Um, the, the one thing that we know about anticipating the future is that we're always going to get it wrong. Um, but I think that we can put plausible bounds around likely things that are going to happen. Um, so simply from what we know about how people make decisions and the evidence around that, we know that if you ignore certain pieces of information, certain evidence, you're going to make worse decisions in terms of projecting or predicting future pathways than if you're actually open to evaluating different types of evidence. And by evidence, I'm not just meaning the scientific evidence, but I'm also thinking about what people believe or hold as valuable within society and and what motivates them to do certain things and react in, in certain ways. All of that is important evidence in terms of getting a sense of what the boundaries are of a future trajectory. And we should remember, Andrew, that, um, the job of anticipation is not to try to get things right or wrong. So, I mean, yes, we will always get our predictions wrong, but if anticipation is about preparing us for the future rather than predicting the future, then rightness or wrongness isn't really the the target. Um, And instead, I would draw attention to the history of cases in which there has been willful ignorance of, um, of particular perspectives or particular... Uh, evidence that has only been uh, realized later which i mean as you you know you know better than anybody the 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 evidence of public health risks that has been swept under the carpet and we have to look first at the sort of incentives that 
prompt innovators to to overlook that evidence. Yeah, I, I think that's so important. Um, so it's worthwhile sort of bringing up the the late lessons from early warnings reports that, that came out of Europe a, a few years ago, which are a series of case studies of previous technological innovations over the last 100 years or so, looking at where innovators and companies and even regulators either missed important early warnings or, as you said, willfully ignored them. And that led to far greater adverse impacts than there really should have been. I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from those in terms of how we avoid those earlier mistakes. So I'd like to take that and move into some more specific examples now. Um, Jack, I know you do, you're do. you interested in self-driving vehicles. That was a topic that came up on the last podcast. We had a couple uh, psychologists talking about things like the trolley problem. And I know that's a touchy subject in the auto industry. So I was curious, how do we start applying that to these new technologies that, that will probably be literally on the road soon? Well, my own sense is that when it comes to self-driving cars, it is, as Andrew was saying earlier, it's extremely convenient for innovators to define risks in particular ways that suit their own uh, ambitions. And I think you see this in the way that the self-driving cars debate is is playing out. Um, And in part, that's because the debate is a largely American one and it emanates from an American car culture. Um, And here in Europe, we see a very different Um, approach to transport with a very different emerging debate. So the trolley problem, right, a classic example of a risk issue where engineers very conveniently are able to treat it as an algorithmic challenge. How do we maximize uh, public benefit and and reduce public risk? Um, Here in, in Europe, where our transport systems are complicated, multimodal, Um, where our cities are complicated, messy things, the self-driving car risks start to expand pretty substantially in all sorts of dimensions. So the sorts of concerns that I would see for the future of self-driving cars relate more to what are sometimes called second-order consequences. What sorts of worlds are these technologies likely to enable? What sort of opportunities are they likely to constrain? Um, And I think that's a far more important debate than the debate about how many lives a self-driving car will either save or take in its algorithmic decision making. So I think, Jack, you have referred to the trolley problem as trolleys and follies. Um, And one of the things I I really grapple with, and I think it's, it's very similar to what you were saying, is that the trolley problem seems to be a false or a misleading articulation of risk. Um, it's something which is philosophical and hypothetical, but actually doesn't seem to bear much relation to the very real challenges and opportunities that we're grappling with with these technologies. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's an extremely convenient issue for engineers and philosophers to talk amongst themselves with. But what it doesn't get is any form of democratization of a self-driving future, which I guess is my interest. Yes. Now, of course, the really interesting thing here is, and we've talked about this, um, I get really excited about the self-driving vehicle technologies, um, 
partly living here in Tempe where um, Google and Uber and various other companies are testing them on the road now. Um, but you have quite a different perspective in, in terms of how fast we're going um, with the technology and, and how little thought there is into the, the longer term sort of social dynamic and consequences. But I, to put my full cards on the table, I can't wait for better technologies in this area. Well, I, I, um, you know, without wishing to be too congenial, I am also excited about the potential for the technology. But what I know about past technology suggests that it may well end up gloriously suboptimal, right? I, I see, I'm interested in a future involving self-driving cars that might actually realize some of the enormous benefits here. The enormous benefits to, for example, bring accessibility to people who currently can't drive. Um, the enormous benefits to public safety, to congestion. But making that work, you know, will not just involve a repetition of current dynamics of technological change. I think current ownership models in the US, current modes of transport in the US just are not conducive to making that happen. So I would love to see governments taking control of this and actually making it work in the same way as in the past governments have taken control of transport and built public value transport systems out of them. Yeah, if if governments are taking control of this and, and they're having it done right, what, what does that mean to have this developed the right way that we're not seeing right now with uh, the manufacturers? I think, it, I mean, the first thing that I don't see any of within the self-driving car debate, because I just think we're at too early a stage, is an articulation of what we want from self-driving cars. Right? We, we have um, the Google vision, the Waymo vision of the benefits of self-driving cars, which is largely about um, public safety, um, fine, but no consideration of what it would take to get that right. And I think that's going to look very different. I think to an extent, Tempe is an, is an easy case because the roads in Arizona are extremely well organized. It, it's sunny. Um, pedestrians behave themselves. But what you're not going to be able to do is take that technology and transport it to central London and expect it to do the same job. So some understanding of, of desirable systems across different uh, places is really important. And that, I'm afraid, does mean sharing control between the innovators and the people who have responsibility for public safety and, and for public transport and for public space. So to me, this is really important because even though most people in this field and other similar fields um, are doing it for what they claim is to be for future benefits and, and the public good, there's a huge gap between good intentions of doing the right thing and actually being able to achieve something positive for society. And I think the danger is that good intentions go bad very fast if you don't have the right processes and structures in place to translate them into something that benefits society. And to do that, you've got to have partnerships and engagement with agencies and authorities that, that have oversight over these technologies, but also the communities and the people that are either going to be impacted by them or benefit by them. I think that's right. I think just letting letting the benefits as stated by the innovators speak for themselves hasn't worked in the past and it won't work here, right? We have to um, allow some sort of democratic discussion about that. All right. So we've been talking about 
uh, some technology that I, I think most people think it's probably coming pretty soon. Um, certainly, we're already starting to see testing of autonomous vehicles on the roads and whatnot. I, I want to move forward in the future to more advanced technology, um, looking at more advanced artificial intelligence, maybe even super intelligence. How do we address risks that are associated with that when a large number of researchers don't even think this technology can be developed? If it is developed, it's still hundreds of years away. How do you address these really, really big unknowns and uncertainties? That's a huge question. Um, and I, so I'm speaking here as something of a, a, a cynic of some of the projections of, of superintelligence. But I think you've got to develop a balance between near and midterm risks, but at the same time, work out how you take early action on trajectories so you're less likely to see the emergence of those longer term existential risks. Um, and one of the things that actually really concerns me here is if you become too focused on some of the highly speculative existential risks, you end up missing things which could be catastrophic in a smaller sense in the, in the near to midterm. So, for instance, um, pouring millions upon millions of dollars into solving um, a hypothetical problem around superintelligence and the threat to humanity sometime in the future at the expense of looking at nearer term things such as algorithmic bias, such as autonomous decision making that cuts people out of the loop and a whole number of other things, um, is a risk balance that doesn't make sense to me. Somehow you've got to deal with these emerging issues, but in a way which is sophisticated enough that you're not setting yourself up for problems in the future. The thing I would add, I completely agree, Andrew. I think getting that balance right is is crucial. And I agree with your assessment that that balance is far too much at the moment in the direction of the, the speculative and long term. And the, one of the reasons why it is, is because that's an extremely interesting set of engineering challenges. So I think the question would be, on whose uh, shoulders does, does the responsibility uh, lie for acting once, once you recognise threats or, or risks like that? And typically what you find when a community of scientists gathers to assess uh, risks is that they frame the issue in ways that um, that lead to scientific or, to, or technical solutions. And it's, it's telling, I think, that in the discussion about superintelligence, the answer, either in the foreground or in the background, is normally more AI, not uh, less AI. And the answer is normally to be delivered by engineers rather than to be governed by politicians. Um, that said, I think there's there's sort of cause for optimism if you look at the recent campaign around autonomous weapons, in that that would seem to be a clear recognition of a technologically mediated issue where the necessary action is not on the part of the uh, innovators themselves, but on all the people um, who are in control of our armed forces. So one of the challenges here, I, I think, is is one of control. And I, I think you're exactly right, Jack. And I should clarify that even though there is a lot of discussion around um, speculative existential risks, there is also a lot of action on nearer term issues such as the lethal autonomous weapons. Um, but one of the things that I've been particularly struck with in conversations is the fear amongst 
technologists in particular of losing control over the technology and, and the narrative. So I've had conversations where people have said that they're really worried about the potential downsides, the potential risks of where artificial intelligence is going but they're convinced that they can solve those problems without telling anybody else about them. And they're scared that if they tell a broader public about those risks, that they'll be inhibited in doing the research and the development that they really want to do. And I think that really comes down to control, not wanting to relinquish control over what you want to do with the technology. But I think that there has got to be some relinquishment there if we're going to have responsible development of these technologies that really focuses on how they could impact people both in the short as well as the long term and how as a society we find pathways forwards. Andrew, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's that's one that I'm not convinced by, this idea that if we tell the public what the risks are, then suddenly the researchers won't be able to do the research they want. Do you see that as a real risk for researchers or do you think that's a little... So I, I think there is a risk there, but it's, uh, it's rather complex. Um, so most of the time the public actually don't care about these things. There are one or two examples. So genetically modified organisms is the one that always comes up, but that is a a very unique and very distinct example. Most of the time, if you talk broadly about what's happening with a new technology, people will say, that's interesting and get on with their lives. Um, So there's much less risk there about talking about it than than I think people realize. Um, The other thing, though, is... Even if there is a risk of people saying, hold on a minute, we don't like what's happening here, better to have that feedback sooner rather than later, because the reality is people are going to find out what's happening. And if they discover as a company or a research agency or a scientific group that you've been doing things that are dangerous and you haven't been telling them about it, when they find out after the fact, people get mad. And that's where things get really sort of um, messy. So it's far better to engage earlier and often. And sometimes that does mean you're going to have to take advice and maybe change the direction that you go in, but far better to do that earlier in the process. Jack, did you have anything to add there? No, I'm fear I'm, Andrew and I are agreeing too much. Sorry. <laughs> Let me try and find something really controversial to say that you're going to sort of scream at me at. I think, I, th- I think you're probably the wrong person to do that, Andrew. I think maybe we could get Elon Musk on the phone and then... Yeah, though, though that's interesting. So I mean, I, I'm not just thinking about Elon, but you've got a, a whole group of, of people in the, the technology sphere here who are very clearly trying to do what they think is the right thing. They're not in it primarily for fame and money, but they're in it because they believe that something has to change to build a beneficial future. The challenge is um, these technologists, if they don't realize the messiness of working with people and society, and they think just in terms of of technological solutions, they're going to hit roadblocks that they can't get over. Um, So this to me is why it's really important that you've got to have the conversations. You've got to take the risk to talk about where things are going with a broader population. And by risk, I mean, you've got to risk your vision um, having to be pulled back a little bit so it's more successful in the long term. So actually, I mean, you mentioned Elon Musk, and he, he says a lot of things to get picked up by the media, and it's perceived as fear mongering. But I found a lot of times, I mean, full disclosure, he supports us, but I found a lot of times when I go back and look at what he actually said in its complete, unedited form, and taken within context, it's not usually as extreme, and it seems a lot more reasonable. So I was hoping you could both touch on 
the impact of media as well and, and how that's driving the discussion? Well, I think it's actually less about media because I think, I mean, blaming the media is always the convenient thing to do. They're the convenient target. Um, I think the, the question is about actually the culture in which Elon Musk sits and, with, and in which his, his views are, are received, which is um, extremely technologically utopian and which wants to believe that there are simple technological solutions to some of our uh, most pressing problems. Um, and in that culture, it is understandable if seemingly seductive ideas about whether they're about artificial intelligence or about new transport systems are taken. I would love there to be a more sort of sceptical attitude so that when the, those sorts of claims are made, just as when any sort of uh, political claim is made, that they are scrutinised and become the starting point for a vigorous debate about the world in which we want to live in, um, because I think that is exactly uh, what is what is missing from our current technological discourse. I would also say with the, the media, I, the media is obviously a, a product of society. Um, we are titillated by sort of extreme scary scenarios um, and the media it's a medium through which that actually happens um, so I, I mean I work a lot with journalists and I would say I've had very few experiences with being misrepresented and misquoted where it wasn't my fault in the first place um, so I think we've got to think of two things when we think of media coverage. First of all, we've got to get smarter in how we actually communicate. And by we, I mean that the people that feel we've got something to say here. Um, we've got to work out how to communicate in a way that makes sense with uh, the journalists and the media that we're communicating through. But we've also got to realize that even though we might be outraged by something we see where we think it's a rep misrepresentation, that usually doesn't get as much traction in society as we think it does. So we've got to be a little bit more laid back with how uptight we get about how we see things uh, are reported. Is there anything else that you think is important to add that we haven't had a chance to discuss as much? I don't think so. No, I think that was that was quite nice coverage of. Um, yeah, I'm just sorry that Andrew and I agree on so much. <laughs> <laughs> so I. Yeah, I would actually just sort of wrap things up. So, yes, I mean, there has been a lot of agreement, but actually, and this is an important thing, it's because um, most people, including people that are often portrayed as just being naysayers, are trying to ask difficult questions so we can actually build a better future through technology and through innovation in, in, in all its forms. And I think it's really important to realize that just because somebody asks difficult questions doesn't mean they're trying to stop progress, but they're trying to make sure that that progress is better for everybody. Here, here. Well, I think that sounds like a nice note to end on. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks very much. Thanks, Ariel. To learn more, visit futureoflife.org.